Good morning. Welcome again, guys. Welcome again to everybody with us online. We want to get into the Word of God this morning, uh, continuing in Acts uh, here on Sunday mornings. We're in the 21st chapter now of the book of Acts. We'll be looking this morning at the first 14 verses uh, of Acts chapter 21. Now, as we get into it, we follow Paul and his companions as they, they leave the Ephesian elders uh, in Miletus. Remember, Paul bypassed Ephesus, uh, but he called for the Ephesian elders uh, from Miletus. Uh, they met him there. There was uh, a very fruitful and emotional final visit because that was the last time that Paul would see them. And so he leaves them behind, uh, and he's on his way back uh, to Jerusalem for Passover. And along the way, we see that this common theme arises, that it's really people begging Paul uh, not to go, because the Holy Spirit was revealing what was in store, and it wasn't positive. And so out of love and concern, They were pleading with Paul uh, to change his plans. But one thing they learned from the resolute nature uh, of Paul was the will of the Lord be done. And we must learn to be submitted to the will of God regardless uh, of what that means and what that entails. And while we're doing that, we need to learn that in the fellowship of Uh, of other believers as Paul did. So we'll see that here. This morning we're going to follow as the third missionary journey uh, wraps up, uh, or almost wraps up, uh, and uh, it's back uh, to Israel uh, from Miletus to Syria, uh, or to Caesarea rather. So Acts chapter 21 verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, Uh, that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara, finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, for there was a ship, uh, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. So uh, in the, the text is... Somewhat, uh, in the way it's translated, a little bit misleading. In heading to Tyre, uh, they would have passed Cyprus uh, on the south side of Cyprus, uh, which would have put Cyprus uh, on their left. And they arrived uh, in Tyre. uh, And the first thing that they did uh, was find some believers. Tyre today is just north of Uh, On the coast of the northern border of Israel, it is in what is um, Lebanon uh, today. And so very near to to Israel, um, you know, 20-ish miles or so uh, from Caesarea. And they they landed there, and the first thing uh, that they did... Uh, was, uh, well, a little more than 20 miles to Caesarea, uh, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, but the first thing that they did uh, was they found some, some believers there. And uh, so um, everywhere Paul went, you see, you see this, uh, especially in this section. He was always seeking out and, and finding other believers to fellowship with. What I've discovered is just that I'm not sure how they do it, 
uh, but many can go a long time uh, without the fellowship of other believers. When I say they can, I, I don't necessarily mean well, uh, but they uh, can get by, uh, I suppose you would say, uh, for quite some time without the fellowship of other believers. Paul could not. He recognized the importance Uh, And everywhere he went, he sought out the fellowship uh, of believers and the church. When you look at the data uh, of American church attendance uh, these days, uh, first of all, when you look at the data, typically it includes all religions. So they'll ask a question, Gallup or Pew Research or somebody will ask a question, and the question will be worded like this. It'll say, in the last... uh, month. Have you attended church in the last month? Or sometimes it'll be in the last seven days. And what they're asking is, have you attended synagogue, mosque, uh, Catholic, or Protestant, uh, or evangelical uh, church? Typically, it's a very broad spectrum survey. So they're looking at Americans from all religious backgrounds, and they're just trying to determine, usually in those surveys, how often do you go to church? Is it weekly? Is it monthly? Is it, you know, uh, less than that? Not at all. And so that's usually, first of all, when you, when you look at these surveys, um, you should know that a lot of times that that's, uh, it's not simply Christians um, that they're talking to. And uh, in, in, when you look at people of all religions, um, in the last few years, since things somewhat recovered after COVID, the number has been about 30%. So the number of all people of all uh, religions that attend in person um, on a month, at least once a month is about 30% in the last you know, three, three or so years. And, uh, but... I will say this, that Americans tend to lie. Uh, and so they, they found this out. And so they did subsequent, less than Europeans, surprisingly. Uh, so they've done different studies and they found, uh, when it comes to church attendance anyway, they, they exaggerate a little bit or maybe give them the benefit of the doubt. They think that they're going more than they actually are. So what they have done in the past are time diary studies. So they'll do a follow-up sometimes time diary study where, where they'll have a, a group of people keep a, a time diary. And what they find is, is that so if the number is 30%, the real number is probably about 10% less when you really figure out you know, how often are they really attending. So, so you got to kind of look at those numbers you know, and realize there's a little bit of an exaggeration factor. But all religions about in America, uh, 20 to 30%. And so... but. I'm really more interested in, in what they would classify as evangelical Christians, and ideally you would even dig a little bit deeper uh, than that. And among evangelical Christians, uh, according to Pew Research, they, they actually published something this year in March of this year. It's a, a, a study called How the Pandemic Has Affected Attendance at U.S. Religious Services. It's from March 28th uh, of this year. And the number... Um, for evangelicals is not surprisingly higher because those other numbers are like Buddhists. You see the Buddhists are, they're, they're not pr- very regular. I'll tell you that, the Buddhists, uh, you know, like 18% if memory serves me correctly. So they're dragging the number down. And, uh, but if you look at evangelicals, 
they break out evangelicals into white and black. Uh, you know, uh, you and I know that uh, there are probably uh, other ways that you would want to break out evangelicals, not necessarily based on color, that are far more applicable. Um, because not everybody that considers themselves an evangelical, as you probably have realized, is necessarily even a true Christian. They might be a churchgoer. And so, but anyway, they like to break out white and black. Obviously, there are cultural differences between culturally white and culturally black churches in certain parts of the country. Um, that's what I love about Calvary Chapel, though, is it's just we don't really have those things. We don't really care about those things. You know, there are people here that, uh, you know, grew up in Catholic churches. There are people here uh, that were Baptists. There are people here that are black, white, Asian. There are all, all different kinds that come in and fill a part of Calvary Chapel. And so we're not really interested in those distinctions. We kind of see either believer or unbeliever. Someone who has received the gospel, someone who needs to hear and needs to receive the gospel. So I think it's a little bit simpler. But they, they break it out into black and white. And amongst white, amongst white evangelicals, uh, the number is about 52% have attended in the last uh, month. For black evangelicals, it's about 41%. Uh, now, you might look at that and you might think, 52, 41, you know, that's pretty good, especially compared to 30% or 18% if you're a Buddhist, right? You know, you look at that and you think, wow, that, you know, that, that number's not too bad, uh, or it's pretty good. But uh, I look at that and I say, but is it? Because uh, it's still only half or less, then you've got to factor in the lying, right? You know, so we got another 10% knock that we got to deal with there. And it's still only monthly. I don't know about you, but if, if I'm not in church for a week, I feel it. So I, 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 I'm not sure how the monthly thing really works out that well, you know, or, or, or less even. So as I, I look at these numbers, I, I, I see something. I see, you know, even on a good day, even at the highest percentage, by the way, the highest percentage was 1955 to 1958, uh, 47 to 49%. So you had a, uh, something obviously very different going on at that time in this country. But even then at that time, uh, you're talking about only half of the population, uh, and again, that's broad religion uh, number, but but uh, conceivably evangelicals would have been higher at that time. Uh, but even then, you're, you still have a large percentage of people that, that consider themselves uh, Christians, even evangelical Christians that would believe everything that you believe, that, that if you were to ask them a question, would, would answer it exactly as you would answer that question, yet go extended stretches in periods of time without fellowship. And... And what we discover is, is it's not, you know, uh, we suffer when we don't. And that's what Paul realized. When he wasn't in fellowship, he, he suffered. He, he didn't seek out other believers because he had to or because he was supposed to. He, he didn't say, well, I'm Paul. You know, I have, to go to, I have to go to church. You know, I'm Paul. And it's kind of, you know part of the job requirement he didn't do that he 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 didn't do it because they made a good case to him why he should join them you know he didn't get a a flyer in the mail uh you know this uh, a mailer well you should come join us it's happening over here and so uh paul went because he longed 
for the fellowship of other believers and to see God work in their midst. He enjoyed it so much and he understood the importance uh, of fellowship. In Proverbs chapter 27, there in verse 17, uh, it says this. This is a good one. If you're not uh, already familiar with this one, you might want to uh, kind of embed this in your heart. But it says, Proverbs 27, 17, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, I don't know about you if, you, uh, if you're interested in, uh, you know, cutlery or things like that, knives or anything like that. Some of you, probably not too many of you ladies, but some of you guys might be, you know, and, and uh, you realize, you know, you get a knife and it's brand new and uh, you're struggling not to cut yourself constantly with it. And then after, a, <laughs> some of you are laughing <laughs> You get it, you're like, wow, yeah, this is great, you know. And then before you know it, oh, man, you know, you're bleeding all over the place. And, uh, but after a while, it, it, gets, it, it gets dull, and so then you realize, all right, I need to invest in, in a couple of tools here just to make sure that I, I keep this uh, sharpened. And uh, so I did, I, I, I did that recently. I got, so I sharpened the knives up, and then I said, well, my wife's scissors in the kitchen, they could use a little sharpening too. I'm telling you what, they're sharp now. <laughs> and uh, they cut very well. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the test, by the way, of a knife, uh, uh, the sharpness of a knife, you get a piece of paper, and if you can just kind of just like that, cut it really easily with your knife, you got a good edge probably on your knife, you know, if it's not yanking and tearing and everything else. And so we can do that with the knives. We can do that with the scissors in the kitchen, you know. They're all very sharp, use caution. And, uh, but, uh, you know, that's what the Bible says that believers do to other believers. You know, uh, life, um, life kind of is like taking that knife and, you know, uh, shoving it in the sand, uh, shoving it in some dirt, digging up a few roots uh, and other things with it. And after a while, you know, it can get pretty dull. And one of the things that happens in fellowship is, is that uh, you get your edge back. You know, it's like iron sharpening iron. You, you come in amidst other believers and you're tuned. And, and that's important. I don't know if you've noticed that. You know, you, you get off by yourself and, and you start to drift and you start to slack and you start to become dull as a believer. And then you come back with other believers and you're like, hey, what am I doing? And they encourage you and they, they lift you up and you're in the word together. And so that's what the Proverbs are talking about here, just like that iron sharpening iron and changing the countenance uh, of one another. And we've talked about this also recently over in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, how the author of Hebrews, uh, unknown, perhaps the Apostle Paul, uh, some are, uh, people are funny about that, you know, uh, they like to argue about whether or not Paul uh, wrote Hebrews. And uh, so usually I just smile. Uh, so, because uh, I know Paul wrote Hebrews, so I don't really, I'm kidding. I, I don't, I don't know that Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, it, I think it's probably a very good chance that Paul is the author of Hebrews, but, uh, 
you know, people, uh, people have some really good arguments that he did and some really good, you know, points, I suppose, that, um, that he did it. But uh, it never really mattered that much uh, to me. But uh, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. One of the big things that happens when we're together as believers is that iron sharpening iron, that exhorting one another. And that becomes even more important the closer that we get uh, to the return of Jesus Christ. So what we need to see, and I, I'm not so much worried about, like I said, the Buddhists or, or uh, you know, they need the gospel. Then, you know, we can be concerned about some of the other things. But people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, um, we need to know that we need fellowship. We need consistent fellowship or we are going to be dying on the vine. And so there is a very important aspect of fellowship that is our communion with God, but there is also another very important aspect of fellowship, and that is our sharpening and our encouragement uh, and our love uh, for one another. And Paul recognized that, and wherever he went, he always found the believers. He always wanted to be with the believers. So they got together, and they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, this is very interesting because it says he was told through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So the question is, is is Paul in going to Jerusalem then being disobedient to the Spirit of God? And and it's it's a reasonable question. It's one that is also fairly easy to answer. And the answer is no, because when we look at uh, just in the last chapter... Uh, in chapter 20 and verse 22, and the chapter before that in chapter 19, verse 21, uh, then in verse 14 of this chapter, and in chapter 23, verse 11, all of those, those sections reveal that Paul was led by the Spirit. So what is the idea here? The idea is, is that they knew that trials of some form were coming, and they knew this by the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean that their advice not to go was from the Holy Spirit. Their advice to change course was motivated by their love for Paul. You would probably do the same thing today. If you, you knew that something difficult was going to happen, you know, naturally you might just say, hey, you know, to someone you might just say, you know, would you, would you change your plans? And, and but Paul... He, he is described earlier as being bound in the Spirit. So even though he knew these things were coming, didn't know exactly what was coming, just that trials and tribulations awaited, he, he was compelled by the Spirit, and he was not going to be moved, and so he was going forward anyway. Verse 5, And when we had come to the end of those days, so when... He had finished up his time with the people in Tyre. We departed and we went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When you look at that, what you discover is is they went as far as they could with him. They did everything short of, you know, when he got on the boat of jumping in the water and swimming after the boat. 
You know, this is how, this is just the love that was shared. And, and it was the same with the Ephesian elders. And they did this, the people of Tyre, they did this, and, and they knelt on the shore there, and they prayed with him, uh, and they went out with their entire family. Entire families going out uh, with Paul. As long as we're on the subject of who's in church, who, who's not in church, and maybe some of the reasons why we'll get to a, a, in a little bit. But uh, one of the fastest disappearing groups from churches is families. You know, you, you might have uh, older and younger or single people, but, but in the middle there, we're seeing a lot of uh, families um, become uh, occupied uh, with other things. And one thing that we note about the early church was is that the early church not only was a family, but it was made up of so many families. And uh, we note here also as these families come out, just the simplicity of, of what was worshipped to them. And in this instance, uh, they prayed together on the shore. And my encouragement to you, as long as you know, we're on the whole subject of church, what makes uh, the church powerful, what makes it effective when we gather is not complexity. Um, you know, today, if you look around, if you look at churches in a Western sense, uh, I would say that it can be pretty complex. You know, it would be interesting to see, uh, like Paul, just check it out, you know. Go forward in time and, and check it out. And, 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 and what would, you know, I, I suspect he would be, what are you doing? You know, we've got cameras on booms and we've got smoke machines and all kinds of stuff happening. And, 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 and it's important. I understand technology has a place. I, uh, I don't have a problem with, you know, YouTube or podcasting or or, uh, you know, uh, projection or any, any, I'm not suggesting, you know, that we should uh, be going to church like they did in Little House on the Prairie, uh, you know, or something like that, where we're sitting in wooden pews in a, in a you know, with no uh, HVAC system or lighting or anything like that. I mean, times change. We, we move forward. We're, we're, we're not suggesting, you know, uh, that we need to live as though we're in the past. But we need to make sure that the things that we're doing make sense and aren't just an addition that somehow we think makes us feel more spiritual without really contributing anything. And, and there needs to be a simplicity uh, of worship and a focus on God, on His Word, on, on pray, not singing, but worshiping Him. And, and, and prayer and serving the Lord and preaching the gospel and, and, and simpler is usually better. Simpler is usually more effective. And sometimes when all of those other things are stripped away, then God is working in those times. And these people, are, they're on the beach. And Paul is about to sail away and they just get together and they have this powerful time uh, of prayer and uh, fellowship together. And it says, verse 6, that he says, we boarded the ship, <coughs> they returned to home. 
And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy. Now, Ptolemy is about 20 miles uh, from Caesarea. We greeted the brethren and uh, stayed with them one day. So he goes, stays with the believers at Ptolemy. On the next day, verse 8, we who were Paul's companions departed, came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So they go... uh, all the way now to Caesarea, which is the port basically for Jerusalem. Uh, Caesarea is just north of a uh, short drive north, about 30 minutes from Tel Aviv uh, today. Tel Aviv obviously <laughs> didn't exist in this particular time, though Jaffa did, Jaffa, all the way back to the time of Jonah, and uh, Jaffa is a suburb uh, basically of Tel Aviv today. And so in Caesarea, they found believers again. In fact, they stayed with Philip. Philip is, uh, is uh, you know, a celebrity, you might say, in the book of Acts, uh, going back uh, very early. He's called one of the seven, and what that's a reference to is back in the sixth chapter of Acts, uh, Philip was one of seven men who was chosen uh, to take care of the distribution uh, to the widows. And so uh, we see Philip there in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, uh, full of the Spirit, uh, chosen to, to serve the widows that were being neglected in the daily distribution. Eventually, the Lord used uh, Philip to uh, preach, uh, and there was a, a great revival in Samaria, uh, we see in chapter 8, and then the Lord used him to uh, reach the Ethiopian eunuch there uh, down in the desert toward Gaza, and then uh, Philip was found at Azotus, and ultimately uh, at the end of uh, chapter 8 there, Philip ultimately, he, he headed to Caesarea. And verse 9, uh, it says that Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So it's interesting to me because Philip wasn't one of these people who had this great ministry, but who his, uh, his kids were in juvenile hall. You, you know what I'm saying? Like the guy took care of things at home first. And that's not to say that everybody who is ministering and who has wayward children, that, um, that it is because they did things uh, wrong. I think that there are, you know, people are people, and uh, children, as they become adults, are going to make their, their own choices. But more often than not, according to the Scripture, they're going to make the right choices if they were uh, ministered to properly by their parents, particularly their father, uh, as a child. And so Philip did, not only had this amazing ministry, uh, but he didn't neglect things at home. And you know, this is unfortunately a pretty common theme. I think some of you probably realize that. People that have done very well in ministry, um, but haven't done uh, all that well in um, raising their own fam- uh, kids and family. And my thought is basically this, that if you don't do that, um, then does the other really matter that much? I'm not saying that ministry doesn't matter, but I, I can tell you this, that, um, that I wouldn't uh, choose to have a uh, successful ministry at the expense of my kids. 
you know, at the expense of my family. And, and I would always choose that first. And if, the other, if you had the other, you know, and great. But if you didn't, so what? Because if your family is doing well. Now, Philip was somebody who happened to have both. He happened to have uh, great success in terms of uh, ministering to his family, but also uh, in the other areas uh, that the Lord used him. And that's because he was just faithful to the Lord. And he made sure that his children were brought up to serve the Lord. What I said a moment ago is not my own opinion. It's from the scripture. And that is that if you raise your children in the Lord, that generally speaking, uh, they will choose to serve the Lord. The Proverbs also tell us that in Proverbs chapter 22, there uh, in verse 6, we're told that to train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So again, does that mean that children, if they're trained up in the way of the Lord, will never depart from it? The answer is no. This is a general rule that if you do this as a parent, then this is the result that you're going to generally see. Obviously, there are exceptions to rules. But what you can be sure of is, is that if you don't do that, the likely, generally speaking, they won't walk with the Lord. So the, so the opposite is true. And so Philip was someone who was faithful to just train these daughters up in the way of the Lord. It reminds me uh, of Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verses 14 and 15. Maybe you're thinking right now, well, you know, uh, I have um, uh, a niece or a nephew or a grandchild or, you know, somebody like that, or, or there isn't a father in the situation. Well, we're going to talk about that in, in just a moment. Um, there's some interesting uh, information around that. But Timothy is, is an encouragement because Timothy's dad, it seems like, um, was not walking with the Lord. But his mom and his grandmother were. And so Timothy, who becomes, you know, basically one of the ones who Paul uh, passes the mantle onto, uh, was someone who was raised by his mother in the Lord and grandmother. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, from the time he was a, a young boy, had been taught the Scriptures. So it's no surprise that, that he became the servant that he was. And he was taught those by his grandmother, uh, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, were told in Scripture. But generally speaking... This responsibility uh, has been given by God to fathers to train up their children. Now, obviously, moms ha have a big role in that, but, but I say the responsibility, the responsibility, uh, a lot of that rests on the shoulders of dad. You know, let me just share a little bit of information with you. I think you'll find it very interesting. Um, we do a census here, obviously, every 10 years a lot of countries do that. Switzerland uh, does that as well. Uh, but Switzerland always uh, asks about religion 
uh, on their census, or at least historically they have. And in 1994, this was the last time to my knowledge they did this, they asked some additional questions uh, to determine uh, why a person's religion was or was not passed on to the next generation. It's fascinating. So not just are you religious, what religion are you, Uh, do you go to church, obviously we've already talked about some of that, but why do you do that? Is there some relationship uh, with your parents or something that you learned from your parents that that was passed on? That's what they were trying to determine. Here's what they found. If mom and dad attended church regularly, so if mom and dad attended church regularly, 33% of their children attended regularly as adults, 41% attended irregularly, and 26% did not attend at all. So 74% attended church some of the time if both mom and dad attended uh, regularly. Now, if dad didn't attend regularly, mom still did, but, but dad only attended some of the time, only 3% of the kids went to church regularly, 59% went irregularly, 38% not at all. If dad did not attend at all, mom's still attending regularly, only 2% went to church regularly, 37% irregularly, and 61% not at all. Now here is where it gets really interesting. If dad attended regularly but mom was inconsistent, the number went up to 38% from 33% who attended regularly. And if mom did not attend at all, the number went up to 44% who attended regularly. What that tells you is, not that what mom does doesn't matter, but in this, the cues are being taken from dad. And what happens is, is if dad is attending regularly, mom doesn't, well, then they realize they admire that commitment. And if dad doesn't, then they realize, oh, adults don't go to church. Dad doesn't, that's not, and they don't even know that they're getting those cues. We're wired a certain way, it seems, to get certain cues from our parents. And we need both. We need mothers, we need fathers, because they're you know, are obvious things that moms contribute to children, and when kids don't have that, you know, um, there is a lack. It's not something that can't be overcome, but there there can be a lack. But in a spiritual sense, what this tells you is, is that the responsibility for passing on a fair amount of faith rests on the shoulders of fathers, and we see this throughout Scripture. So we realize, and here's another interesting one. One of the most attended uh, church services is Mother's Day, holiday-wise. One of the least attended church services is Father's Day. Why? Because if people are spiritual, a lot of times in families, it's moms and kids want to honor mom and they'll come to church with mom. But if they don't feel like dad values church, then they're not going to church on Father's Day or probably most other other days, right? So it's very interesting when you start to break down family dynamics in terms of numbers. And, And when I mention these numbers to you, I don't think they would be any different in the UK where this was actually published. 
uh, or here in the United States if you were to look at them. By the way, if you, you want to go read more about this, you'd have to dig back a little ways. Uh, it's, uh, if you, try, if you, you struggle to sleep, uh, this, this title might help you. The Demographic Characteristics of the Linguistic and Religious Groups in Switzerland by Werner Hogg and uh, Philip Warner of the Federal Statistical Office, Neuchatel. It appears in Volume 2 of Population Studies, number 31, The Demographic Characteristics of National Minorities in Certain European States, edited again by Werner Hogg and others, published by the Council of Europe, Directorate General 3, Social Cohesion, Strasbourg, January 2000. So, if you're interested, just light a candle, uh, warm glass of milk, crack that open, I suspect you'll sleep well. But that little nugget that comes out of there tells me a lot. It tells, tells, tells me a lot, uh, and we see it back here uh, with Philip. Philip was a guy served in Samaria. People got saved. Ethiopian eunuch, he got saved. Azotus, Caesarea, uh, widows in Jerusalem, wherever he went, full of the Spirit of God, has children. That gets passed on uh, to his children, uh, that faith as well. Now, we've talked a lot about church attendance. I don't think that uh, church attendance paints the entire picture, uh, but it is something quantifiable that you can actually uh, study that accompanies so many other things. In other words, people aren't in fellowship typically regularly and in the Word of God and in a church and serving and not seeing the benefit uh, in many areas of their lives, uh, spiritually speaking. And so uh, that's, that's the picture, the greater picture that it can give you an indi- indication of. Verse 10. And as we stayed uh, many days in Caesarea, uh, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands uh, of the Gentiles. So the funny thing was is that the day before, actually, Paul lost his belt and he borrowed Luke's. And uh, I'm kidding. Yeah, that's not in the Bible, so. But I kind of think about that. Wouldn't that be fun? Like, hey, can I borrow your belt? Then Agabus takes his belt. Luke's face turns white. Uh, No. Agabus, you know, he's extra, as as we say. He, he, you know, he's a bit over the top. But he's telling the truth. It's full of the Holy Spirit, revealing to Paul, uh, this is going to hurt a little bit. And, you know, this isn't going to be pleasant and so you say, okay, going back to the others earlier who were telling Paul in the spirit what, you know, what was going to happen, begging him not to go, but this, he's already bound in the spirit to go. So why, why do that? Why on the one hand does God tell him this, but then also lead him that way? And the answer to that is, is that because it was going to be a conscious decision. It was going to be a sacrifice. It was going to be something in this case that he was willingly going to walk into knowing that he wasn't going to necessarily come out the other side or not without a lot of difficulty. And so would he still make that choice? You know, a lot of times 
God doesn't tell you what's coming, and that's helpful. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you, uh, you might know or have a sense that, um, that things are going to be difficult. And yet you choose to be obedient and to go forward anyway. And that's what's happening with Paul here, that no matter what, he's going forward faithfully uh, by the Spirit of God. Verse 12, now when we had heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, the will of the Lord be done. We have to be careful not to be persuaded even by well-meaning people. We need to, one, for ourselves, determine the will of the Lord be done and have other people realize that as well. And that's what happens here with Paul as a true leader. He appreciates the love and the concern, the care that he's receiving. He sees the heart behind it with these people. He, he knows that they're not trying to steer him wrong or off the course of you know, God's will for his life. They just care about him. But he also realizes that at the end of the day, you've got to learn to differentiate that between people who maybe care about you and want to see no harm come to you and, and God who also doesn't necessarily want to see harm come to you but knows that he can take you through anything and might be calling you in a certain direction. And so determining for himself and as well helping, the, helping these folks learn of the will of the Lord be done. So with each stop, Paul was, you know, all along the way, Paul was getting the same message. Difficult things are awaiting you in Jerusalem. Please don't go. But Paul wasn't moved uh, off course, uh, off of the course that, um, that the Holy Spirit had him on. And some, it's interesting, if you think about it, if you're getting this message all along, you know, don't go, it's going to be bad, and, you know, uh, some people might say, you know, I'm going to avoid believers. I don't want to hear that. I don't, don't want to hear that message. And some people, when difficulty arises, especially, or the prospect of difficulty arises, they withdraw. That has been my experience. People do one of two things. They either, when things get hard or are getting increasingly harder, they commit more to their brothers and sisters in Christ or they pull back. They don't usually stay the same. They do one or the other. Paul got more involved with his fellow believers as, as if the apostle Paul could. He sought them out even more. He spent even more time with them. And that's my encouragement to you that no matter what happens in life, but especially if it's difficult or especially if it's looking like things are going to be difficult, lean in more to your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and put yourself more in the middle uh, of fellowship. Don't with, withdraw yourself. Uh, and so 
he goes out of his way to find these other believers. And we desperately need to be in fellowship, uh, especially as we're dealing with challenges uh, of life and, and serving the Lord. And so my prayer is, is that the will of the Lord be done in each and every person's uh, life uh, here, but that also that we find that together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time you have given us, this, this moment right here, together. The things that you have said to us today together, as we gather together with one accord, with one mind, with one heart, one spirit. Lord, we pray. We pray for revival in our hearts, that this need that we speak of for you and for your church would be the pressing need in all of our lives. And that you would do this revival not only in us, but in the church of true believers, wherever they may be as a whole, all over the world that the desire would be for you and for one another. And that you would work powerfully as you do through your church. That you would pour out your spirit afresh on your people. And that you would draw many, many more to yourself in these days in which we live. Lord, there is room room for so many more who would place their faith and trust in you. As we're praying this morning, if you've come today and you're not part of the church, you're not part of the kingdom of God, at least not in a believing sense, you need to be. If you don't know where you'll spend eternity, you can know. You don't have to wonder. Yes, you were born in sin. I was born in sin. The heart of a sinner. Lost and separated from God. But he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for my sin and for yours. Every last one of them. To wash us and to cleanse us and to reconcile us to God that we might be forgiven and that we might have eternal life, and that we might serve him now. And if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you haven't repented of your sin and received Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I'd like to pray with you this morning to do that. You can pray right here. God will hear you. He will receive you. Jesus Christ will come in. The Spirit of God will take up residence in you. But you have to choose that for yourself. So if you'd like to join me this morning in prayer, would you raise your hand where you are? Would you slip up your hand and we'll pray? God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. If you want to pray, let's pray together.
God is going to hear your prayer. You don't have to fear. If you're watching online, you want to pray with us, let's pray. You can pray something like this. And if you mean it in your heart, if it is a sincere prayer, God hears you. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. And I'm sorry for my sin. And I thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross for all my sin. I receive his sacrifice. I receive your forgiveness in him. I thank you that I'm free, forgiven, washed of my sins. I thank you that I have eternal life. I thank you that I'm your child and that I'll be with you. And I ask you now all the rest of the days of my life to give me strength to walk with you by your spirit, to give me the gifts that I need to serve you, to give me the wisdom to walk with you, to make me holy. In Jesus' name. And Father, we thank you for these that have prayed. Bless them. Keep them. Strengthen them. And again, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.